forgive us for not giving you the praise that's worthy of your name. You are lovely. You are worthy. And you demonstrated that for us. By the fact that you went to the cross. You died for our sins. And all you ask of us is to turn from our sins and ourselves and to call on your name and you'll save us. Oh, it's so simple. It's so simple, it blows our minds. But help us not to forget your great love for us, your mercy, your grace. Now this morning, Lord, we ask that you would give us ears to hear your word, hearts to obey, and help us to respond by being obedient to you. And we ask and we pray this in your name. Turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. I want to talk about the new wine, and I especially want to look at tradition. My mother had a favorite Broadway musical. Now, I have to, I have to confess, I grew up on Broadway musicals. My sister used to play her record player when she would clean the house on Saturdays, and all she played was Broadway musicals, Camelot, Fiddler on the Roof, My Fair Lady, um, West Side Story. I know all the songs of Camelot, of all the Broadway musicals. I don't know the storyline, so I have no idea what they're doing, <laughs> why they're singing that, but I do know the songs. And one of my mother's favorite ones, favorite ones, was Fiddler on the Roof. Fiddler on the Roof. And they have that great song in the middle of Fiddler on the Roof. What is it? Tradition. Tradition exists. It's around us. Now, as we started on this whole series on God doing a new thing and new ideas, we knew we were going to bump into, at some point, a discussion about tradition. And so I wanted us to look at a passage of scripture, and then we're going to look at this passage, and we're going to take a leap back, okay? We're going to take a leap back. So Luke chapter 5, starting at verse 33. Luke chapter 5, starting at verse 33. One day, some of the people said to Jesus, John the Baptist's disciples fast and pray regularly, as so do the disciples of the Pharisees. Why are your disciples always eating and drinking? Okay, very interesting question. Jesus responded, do wedding guests fast while celebrating the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them, and then that will be time to fast. 
Then Jesus gave them this parable or this illustration. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and uses the patch on an old garment. For when a new garment would be ruined and a new patch wouldn't even match the old garment. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. For the new wine would burst the wineskin, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine must be stored in new wineskins. And no one who drinks old wine, that, that's the strong stuff, seems to want the new wine. For the old is much finer, they will say. Let me say something about change. I don't like change. That's why when I go away to conferences and meetings, that's when Belinda decides to move all the furniture around. Because <laughs> I don't like it. Did I give some of you wives ideas now? <laughs> if I had my way, if I had my way, I would have six pairs of pants, six shirts, six sweaters. They would all be the same. I would never waste any moment thinking about what to wear. I would wear the same thing every day, like Steve Jobs. Yeah, I, I don't like change. But the one sure thing in our existence is that change happens. It happens. And Jesus is confronted with a question from the Pharisees. They're saying, John's disciples fasted and prayed and and the Pharisees fasted and prayed and they had their rituals. And your guys don't do any of that. Better yet, they're spending most of the time, the implications is eating and drinking, partying hardy. And Jesus then goes into this discussion about new wine in new wineskins, about tradition into old, the gospel put into old systems. To understand why this question comes up, to understand it, that this question was motivated by the preceding activities of Jesus. You won't get this question until you understand what was happening before it. Now, let me give you, let me give you some background. Jesus shows up on the scene, okay? And the disciples, most of the disciples, were basically disciples of John the Baptist, okay? So Jesus shows up, and what does John say? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, okay? Well, you, see this in, you see this in the Gospel of John. And they begin following Jesus on a part-time basis, I believe. So there's still John the Baptist's disciples, but they're also hanging out with Jesus, just trying to figure out who this Jesus guy is. And so all the stuff we see, the wedding at Cana, the woman at the well, all that stuff is in the early, the first year of Jesus' contact with the disciples. And if you understand that they're getting used to Jesus, 
Um, their questions are related to that. That's why when they see Jesus talking with the woman as a rabbi, they don't go up and confront him because they don't know how to deal with this situation. They, they even say they were concerned that Jesus was talking to a woman in John chapter 4, but no one would come up to him and ask him, why is he talking to the woman? And his mother comes up to him at the wedding of Canaan and says, take care of this wine situation. And he kind of blows her off like, why are you telling me what to do? Because everybody's trying to figure out Jesus. Everybody's trying to figure out Jesus. Well, after they spend about a year with Jesus, there are a couple of events that change the whole dynamic. Number one, John the Baptist is put into prison. He's in prison. And so once John the Baptist is put into prison, the disciples now begin to spend all their time with Jesus. They're not spending, they're not part-time with Jesus. And that's the beginning, believe it or not, of Luke chapter 5. That starts off with, at the beginning of this time. It says, starting at verse 1, One day Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. A great crowd pressed on him to listen to the word of God. They noticed two, he noticed two empty boats at the water's edge. For the fishermen had left them and they were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus said, ask Simon, if it's the owner, to push out into the water. And then we know, we know what happens after this. It pushes out into the water, and, and Jesus goes up to them, and he says, um, how was your day? How was your fishing? And what is Peter's response? We've been out all night, and we haven't caught a thing. Okay? How many of you fishermen have had that experience? Yeah, like when I was at the Gehrig's house. Everybody's pulling in these huge bash, and I'm getting nothing. I'm, I'm baptizing worms. <laughs> okay. Okay. They were skunked. The disciples were skunked. Jesus says, go out and let out, out, out your net. Go out and let down your nets. And I'm sure Peter was saying, okay, he, he says... We've been at it all night, but because you've asked, I'm going to do it. But I can see, think of Peter in his mind saying, you know what? You don't know anything about fishing. You're a carpenter. But if you want me to go out and drop my nets again, I'll do it. But I don't think anything is going to come from it. Well, the Bible says they caught so many fish that their nets were starting to break and their boats were about to sink. Okay? And Jesus turns to them. And he says, from now on, I will make you fisher of men. I want you to get the implication there. He's not talking about the way we fish, one fish at a time. You know, net. He's talking about net fishing. He says, from now on, you're going to see, when, when I get through with discipling and ministering and build you up, you're going to see Thousands of people come to know Christ at one moment. It's going to overwhelm you like it overwhelmed the fishing boats. And if you don't believe that to be true, read Acts after the day of Pentecost. What happened? 3,000 people get saved on one day. The church is overwhelmed. So they start meeting at homes and sharing their goods. I've made you fisher of men. But I want you to think about who then Jesus calls them. But who are these guys? 
They were ordinary. Rabbis normally picked the smartest and the brightest. Okay? The smartest and the brightest. Where did Jesus do his fishing? Among fishermen. They were not the sharpest. They were not the brightest. And we know that because in Acts chapter 4, when they're brought before the court, what's the question about them? They marveled at their responses. Why? Because they were ordinary men, unlearned, no degrees, no Bible school, no college, no formal rabbinical training. And, but they noticed one thing about them, that they had been with Jesus. Jesus had rubbed off them. Jesus picked ordinary people. You go down a little further at verse 12. A leper is confronted with Jesus. In one of the villages, Jesus met a man who was in advanced stages of leprosy. The man saw Jesus and bowed his face to the ground, begging him to heal him. Lord, he said, if you are willing, can you heal me and make me clean? I love Jesus' response to this. I am willing, be healed. And instantly, the leprosy disappeared. Now, Jesus gives him some instructions. He gives him some instructions. Not to tell anybody, but what happens? He tells everybody anyway. You can't hold the good news in. Look at what it says here. The man says, if you're willing, cleanse me. Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing. He says, go to the priest and examine yourself. Now, we had a discussion about this on Wednesday night. If you're a rabbi and you touch the man with leprosy, what happened to you? But you're unclean. You're unclean. Clean person touching an unclean person, you're disqualified. So now you have to go through a whole bunch of rituals, sacrifices, seven-day waiting period, got to go present. Also, leprosy, we don't know exactly what leprosy was, but we know it was a contagious disease. I never forget when I took CPR. Any of you taking CPR? In the old days, you used to stop and you just give mouth-to-mouth -mouth on somebody. Now you're supposed to have a mouth cover and, or open up a plastic bag. It's different now, right? You don't know what people have. You got to ask permission, is it all right if I touch your body now? You know, lawsuits. You touch, rabbis didn't go around touching unclean people. They didn't lay their hands on the unclean. It would have disqualified them, made them so that they couldn't go into the temple. I believe that's part of the reason why when we look at the story of the Good Samaritan, why the priest and the Levi didn't touch the guy that was off the side of the road because they had a thought that maybe this guy was dead. If we go and check him out and we touch him and he's dead, then we're, just, then we're, then we're unclean. And then at verse 17, if you go down, it's a story about the paralyzed man. One day while Jesus was teaching some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and was sitting nearby, he 
It says, it seemed that these men showed up in every village of Galilee and Judea, as well as from Jerusalem. This crowd of religious people were following Jesus. And it says, and the Lord's healing power was strongly with Jesus. I don't have time to talk about that whole concept. About what it means to have the healing power strongly with an individual. The healing power was strongly with Jesus. And then we know the story, right? What happens? Some friends get this guy who's paralyzed and they bring him to Jesus. But they can't get into the room, right? So what do they do? They climb up on the roof. They take the roof off and let him down. I wonder how church would be if all of a sudden somebody started coming through the roof. That would be different. And so they bring the man before Jesus. He wants to be healed. But what does Jesus say to him? What's his first response? Jesus says, young man, your sins are forgiven. Oh, time out here, Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to themselves, who does he think he is? What he is saying is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Who does he, you know, what does he think he's doing over here? Jesus knew what they were thinking. That's already a statement of his deity. He knew what they were thinking. So he asked them, why do you question what you have heard? And then he asks them a question. And I remember Pastor Dave preaching on this at one time. Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? How many of you think it's easier to say your sins are forgiven? How many of you think it's easy to say stand up and walk? I, I, I'm, I'm on the side it's easy to say your sins are forgiven because you can't see that happen. <laughs> okay? Your sins are forgiven. I don't see it. But stand up and walk? <laughs> okay, you're going to see that. So Jesus says, Jesus says, so, I will prove that you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man. He says, stand up, pick up your mat and go home. And immediately, as everyone was watching, the man jumped up, picked up his mat and went home praising God. Everyone was gripped with great wonder and awe. And praise God exclaiming, we have seen amazing things today. Jesus challenges the very thought of what the role of the Son of Man is. Yes, it's the heal. Jesus had been healing. That's why the crowds were pressing on him. But what they didn't see Jesus do is forgive sins. And what he said is that I can make this man walk. I have the authority 
also to forgive sins. And I can see people walking, but my sins are an offense to God. I can't see that. Jesus challenged their very thoughts. And then lastly, at verse 27, Jesus calls the wrong disciple. Later, after this healing, verse 27, Jesus left the town. He saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple. Now, do you know who the disciples were? There were two disciples known as the Sons of Thunder. Okay? They like to fight all the time. Some of the disciples were zealots. And zealots were Jewish revolutionaries who walked around with swords wanting to kill Roman, the Roman occupation. Tax collectors were co-conspirators with the Roman government. They worked for the Roman government. And they were all crooked. Every single one of them was crooked. They didn't do taxes, well, let me, let me say, yeah, like we do today. I guess they were, the Roman the taxes, they were crooked. <laughs> Whatever they could get, they got. And Jesus calls Levi to be his disciple. And I'm sure the disciples were saying, time out here, Jesus. Two words always go together in the Bible. Tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors and sinners. Jesus, you don't want to be hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Better yet, if you look at Luke chapter 15, it says that, G that they were questioning Jesus. Jesus, you're always hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. You're even eating with them. And that's when Jesus tells the whole story of the, the lost coin and the lost sheep and the lost son. That, that whole discussion about lost things flows out of the question, why are you hanging out so much with lost people and eating with them? Let me give you a tip, folks. People want to know, how close should Christians be with non-Christian people? Isn't that always a question? Here we go. That's always a question. How close should non-Christians be with non-Christian folks? My answer is, you should be so close that your Christian friends are wondering if you're too close. Let me bring that back to you. How close should you be? You should be so close that your Christian friends are thinking that you're too close. We, if we're going to follow in the steps of Jesus, need to be friends of sinners. One of my favorite compliments from non-Christian people is, Pastor Bob, you don't act like a pastor. I said, oh, thank you so much. Oh, oh, th thank you so much. I don't know if that's a commentary on how I'm acting or a commentary on pastors, but I take it for, I take it as, I'm out of the box. That's good. So Jesus calls Levi and he follows Jesus. And in appreciation, in appreciation 
for the ministry of Jesus. He has a party. And guess who he invites? Well, his tax collector cronies. And Jesus goes in and he's eating with them and he's hanging with them. And, and at the banquet, the Pharisees are complaining that, that, that you're, why are you hanging with the people? Why do you eat with them? Why do you drink uh, in, in, in the New Living Translation? Why do you drink with such scum? Why are you drinking? Why are you hanging out with such low lives? Don't you know who they are? Don't you know what they've done? Don't you know how they live? Don't you know how they, you know, come on, Jesus. I thought you were a religious person. And you're hanging out with the riffraff. When I started my church, when I was in New York, the church said, Pastor Bob, we want you to reach, we want you to reach black men. That's black men in, in New York. Well, we didn't have any black, we didn't have hardly any men in the church. It was basically all women. So I had to figure out where, where are the men hanging out? <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, I found out where the men hung out. They hung out in front of the liquor store playing dominoes. That's, that's, where, they, that's where the men hung out. They, 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 there was two places you could always find the men in my community, in front of the liquor store playing dominoes or at the basketball court. You know what I mean? That, that's where they were. So what I did was, is every Wednesday afternoon, I would go and play dominoes in front of the liquor store. Oh, and people started, oh, church people, oh, man. Better yet, I had office hours in front of the liquor store playing dominoes. People knew. <laughs> Where's Pastor Bob? You know, oh, he's, he's in front of the liquor store playing dominoes. <laughs> oh, and people complain. Oh, people complain. People complain. And at first, the guys in front of the liquor store were kind of like, who are you? I'm Pastor Bob. I'm the pastor of the church down the block. Why are you here? Because I want to whoop you all in some dominoes. <laughs> oh, now you want to talk about it. Come on. <clears throat> and after weeks and weeks of playing dominoes, some of those guys came to know Jesus. I'll never forget, we had the church picnic. Church picnic. And I invited my domino buddies to come to the church picnic. I probably should have given them more instructions, but I didn't. <laughs> so they came, they came to, the, to, the, to the picnic. First of all, they had a big cooler. Oh, that was problem number one. <laughs> Because what they had in the cooler was not church-certified beverages. <laughs> and then they, had a, they, had, they bought their own music. Oh, and it wasn't church-certified music. And then we played volleyball and basketball. And they were spiking on the little old ladies and <laughs> hard-checking people in the... They were just not ready to hang out with church folks. And folks complain, look at the music they have. Look at, look at what they're drinking. They're smoking and they cuss. I never forget opening my Bible and it says, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. 
Jesus said, I have come to call out those who think they are right. I have not come to call out those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. All these events sets up the question they have for Jesus. Why are your disciples, why are you, why are you hanging out? Your disciples don't do any of the religious activities that church people are supposed to. They don't wash their hands. They don't follow the fasting codes. What are you? John's disciples did. The Pharisees did. But your guys don't. That brings the discussion of the new wine in old wineskins. Number one, tradition makes you ask the wrong questions. I don't believe there's any bad questions. There's just wrong questions. Because of the rules and regulations of the Pharisees, they were constantly asking the wrong questions. Here's a man who's been blind by birth, and the best question they can come up with, who sinned, him or his mother, that he was born this way? Wrong question. They're asking a question about washing hands and eating and drinking. That's the wrong question. Tradition asks, gets us to ask the wrong questions about stuff. It, you know, the, the wrong question is, should we have contemporary worship or, or traditional worship? Should we be praising with our hands up or should we not be praising with our hands up? Should we be pra praising with loud music or not loud music, electric guitars, drums? Folks, those are the wrong questions. God is trying to make worshipers. And if some of those worshipers are a little louder than me, that's what God is making. He's making worshipers. He's not thinking about drums, non-drums, guitars, not drums. He's not, he's not in favor of Chris Tomlin, Chris Tomlin or Fanny Crosby. You know, he's, he's not debating that. He's trying to make worshipers. Now, don't get me wrong. Not everything is appropriate in every environment. But I can tell you this. That's not the right question. Tradition is handed down statements of beliefs, customs, information from one generation to another. These traditions are most often handed down by word of mouth and by practice. Not all traditions are bad. Okay? So don't go out of here and say, Pastor Bob doesn't believe in you. Not all traditions are bad. When it comes to Christmas, guess what? I'm a traditionalist. I don't care what Tim says. <laughs> I like the candles, the decoration, the Christmas carols. I like it all. Okay? I don't care what the commercialism does to Christmas. I believe that it is the, us celebrating the birth of my Savior. I'm going to do it with as much gusto as I can. I don't care. Okay? I don't care. They can do whatever they want with that holiday, but it's still my holiday. It's still my celebration of the birth of Christ. I celebrate it. So not all tradition is bad. Better yet, 
We created traditions in my family. We created traditions. Because traditions which are connected to the core meaning and value that you believe in help people in their faith. If they're connected to core beliefs and core values, traditions help. That's why we're pro-marriage between a man and a woman, because that's a tradition. Supporting that belief system. It's not about being homophobic or against gays. No, no, no. It's about, it's about that core value is important to our nation, important to our homes, important to our families. That's why we support it. Let me tell you something. The Bible also supports it. The Bible says he created them man and woman, male and female. I don't see any middle category there. But when you take traditions and they become devoid of the core meeting and the core values, then they become a burden. Just doing stuff the way you've always done it because that's what you've been told that does not have its deep-rooted values in the word of God, in the relationship, then they become a drag. I'm not against traditions. I'm against traditions that are devoid of the meaning. Also, traditions that hinder us from winning the loss to Christ or helping us to build up believers to a place of maturity in their relationship with, are also wrong. Tradition shouldn't serve as a hurdle for people in their relationship with Christ. We shouldn't be setting stumbling blocks in front of people in their faith by our traditions. I used to feel guilty about mowing my lawn on a Sunday. Because of what some people might think or might say, Pastor Bob is mowing his lawn on Sunday. But I can also mow my neighbor's lawn. It shouldn't hinder me from doing what is good to reaching out to the lost, to helping those in need. Our tradition shouldn't act as a stumbling block a hurdle for us to win people to Jesus. So what is this new wine? The new wine of the gospel cannot be contained by even our traditions. Our traditions should not cause us to overlook the gifts, skills, and abilities, and the talents of ordinary Christians. Let me tell you something. I am part of Christian higher education. I teach for Crossroads Bible College, Grace College, Cedarville University. I've taught at Moody and Trinity and Wheaton. And if we think we're going to get the future leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ, from Bible schools and seminaries, we are gravely deceived. God is raising up ordinary people 
And I believe that the training has to be moved from these great halls of education that cost over 130 something thousand dollars and begin to be embedded in the body of Christ and in the church of Jesus Christ. We can do it. We can do it. Because there's some good people in our churches. They can't afford to go to Bible school. Come on. And some of you who have gone to Bible school and you're still paying for it. I'm being honest. If you're going into youth ministry or children's ministry or you want to go into urban ministry, I'm saying don't go to Bible school. I'm being honest. Don't, don't go there because let me tell you, when you graduate, you're going to have $130,000 and you're going to get a $20,000 a year job. Do the man. <laughs> now, I think there is a role for higher education. To do R&D, to create the, the theologians, the, the scholars. But those first disciples were not scholars. They were fishermen. Tradition should not keep us from a personal relationship and contact with those who are lost. Jesus touched the leper. We need to get up close and personal with those who are confused and helpless and harassed, the distressed, dejected, the helpless. We need to touch them because they need shepherding. Ministering to the lost is messy, 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 messy work. You cannot do it and keep your hands clean. You cannot do it without getting in the mick and the mire and the mud and the mess of people's lives. That's the people who need doctors. And yes, we should be careful and put on our gloves and our masks and stuff, you know. But you got to get in it if you're going to win the lost. And folks, this is an urban ministry. This is an urban ministry. And if you think you can do this with arm's length and keep, I'm telling you, you can't. We're going to have to get in it. to win the loss. Our traditions should affirm the true nature of Jesus Christ as Redeemer and Savior. We cannot and will not compromise the fact that we are making disciples, not just healing bodies. The first thing Jesus said to the paralyzed man was your sins are forgiven. He dealt with the sin issue first. And I'm all in favor of the laundry ministry, the food pantry, and all other kinds of social outreach harvester can do to, to help broken people in our community. But our primary task, our primary responsibility is to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples to win the loss, to call them to a personal relationship with Jesus. And let me say something to even people here. 
If you're here and you do not have a conscious, if you're not aware of your relationship with Jesus, if you're not sure that you are saved, born again, use any term you want, if you're not convinced that if you were to die tonight that you would go to heaven, if, you, if, you, if you've never once come clean and said, I am a sinner in need of a Savior, then what are you waiting for? We can give you bread, you can pick up some cookies after church, and you can eat those and die and still go to hell. But I got good news for you. Good news. There is a savior, a deliverer, a healer. And his name is Jesus. And if you put your trust in him, he will make you whole. And I don't care what your favorite drug or favorite misbehavior or favorite bad attitude is. Jesus can heal it and make you whole. And he will put you in the family of God. And you'll experience a life in a way that you have never experienced before. Hey, we want to help paralyzed people. Broken down folks. We're committed to that. But let me tell you something. If you don't know Jesus, you can be fed, watered, and housed and still be lost. Better yet, the next two weeks, next Sunday and the Sunday after that, I'm going to be talking about the gospel in two weeks. To talk about the new birth and the new life. The new birth and the new life. Because if you don't experience a new birth, you can't get a new life. And if you don't get a new life, you're stuck. Stuck with your stuff. The birth has to happen, and once the birth happens, then you start the life. And then lastly, tradition should not keep us from reaching out to those who are considered outcasts and sinners in our society. Our relationship with sinners, sinners should be welcoming regardless of what religious people say. I would be glad if this church were to be known as the place where you could come with your stuff and people will love you into a relationship with Jesus. I would be proud be a part of that kind of a church. In closing, where do we go? How do we get there from here? Jesus said, whoever wants to save his life, whoever wants to keep his stuff, your church, your favorite pew, your favorite songs, Whoever want to keep that stuff will lose it. But he said, if you give it away for my sake, the sake of Jesus. I'm not saying give up your traditions because you want to. Give it up for the sake of the gospel. I grew up on hymns in the King James Bible. I love the sound of both. 
for the sake of the gospel, I'll listen to Christian rap music for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel, I'll get loud. For the sake of the gospel, I'll go longer. For the sake of the gospel, I'll get more diverse. For the sake of the gospel, we need to get beyond ourselves, beyond what's comfortable to us. I get it. I get it. I'm there. I'm, I'm a, one of the old guys. I get it. But for the sake of the gospel, Jesus says, if you give that stuff up, you know what happens? He gives it back to you. He gives it back to you, and it's better. He gives it back to you, and it's fuller. It's more meaningful when he gives it back. Keep holding on to it. All that can happen is to get take it away from you. Give it away. He gives it back. You, you give away this church. You give this church away to what God wants us to do. And guess what? He gives it back to us. But what, what do we get back? It's better. I don't want to go back to the 50s. I'm not about to put on my overalls and fight for right to vote. I'm not. I'm not going back there. I'm not going back there. Do you hear me? I got the 50s. I'm not going back to the 60s. I'm trying to not even get back to last year. We constantly have to look at ourselves in light of the gospel. Father in heaven. Oh, this is heavy stuff, Jesus. I like my traditions. I like them. I like my favorite hymn, my favorite pew. But help me, Lord, to lay it all down, to see men and women and boys and girls come to a personal, conscious, dynamic relationship with you. Help me to lay it all down. And I pray this, Lord, in your name.